Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bibles to the book of 2 Peter. At the back of your Bible, 2 Peter chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible in the hardcover pew Bible in the chair in front of you, uh, you could turn to page 472 and you'll find 2 Peter chapter 1 there on page 472. We're going to be looking at verses 1 and 2 today, so this is a little awkward, but we're starting our series on 2 Peter, and then we're going to take off most of December and pick it up again in January, um, because we're hitting our missions and then Christmas season in December. But we'll start today, 2 Peter chapter 1. If this is your first time reading the Bible, the big numbers are the chapter numbers, and the small numbers are the verse numbers. So if I say 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 2, or 2 Peter 1 2, it's the big number one and then the small number two, and that's where we would be. All right? Let's look at verses one and two of Second Peter. Hear the words of the living God. Simeon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith equal to ours, through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. May his word dwell richly among us. Father, that is our prayer, that the word of Christ would dwell richly among us, that you would fill us with your spirit, that we would be thankful and praise you and sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in our heart to you. Overwhelm us now with your grace. We pray that you would do what we sang. Speak, O Lord, until Bethany Baptist Church and all the churches are built and the earth is filled with your glory. Apart from you speaking, apart from you opening our eyes and our hearts, and our ears, we will not bear any fruit. So Lord, may we abide in the words of Christ, and may we abide in Christ, and may his words abide in us, that we might bear fruit for your glory. We admit one more time, apart from you, I can't preach faithfully, we can't hear faithfully. So help us, we are desperate for you. Our children, as they hear your word, are desperate for you. So speak powerfully and effectively, in saving grace we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. May the force be with you. Famous quote, right? You hear that over and over in uh, now, I guess this next month, the ninth installment of the, of the Star Wars episodes, episode nine coming out next month. Another famous quote from the movie, remember, Obi-Wan Kenobi said, the force will be with you always. Or another quote from the, first, the very first movie, use the force, Luke. I like Star Wars. I'm no, by no means a Star Wars geek in, in terms of, I just watch the movies and like the movies, but I don't follow anything else besides those. Um, and I like the Jedi, the Jedi Order. I, I love the Jedi. I love how it captivates, just makes you want to be a Jedi, you know, be a hero in that regard. Um, one of my favorite quotes and I thought it was said more than once, but I looked it up and I could only find it being said once. And it's from Darth Vader when he's chasing Luke Skywalker, um, trying to kill him. And he says, the force is strong with this one. He could sense that the force is strong with this one. I imagine myself being strong in the force, picking up airplanes and uh, saving galaxies with my lightsaber. So... I say again, may the force be with you, just as a Star Wars fan. Now that's sci-fi fantasy. There is no impersonal force that runs the universe with a dark side and a light side. But there is a force that does work in some people. It does accompany some, and it is used by some to really change this real, broken, and fading world. There is a real force that works in real people, and it's not sci-fi fantasy. And it is not an impersonal force. It is grace. It's God's grace. What is God's grace? God's grace is God's goodness poured out to you. God's grace is God's goodness applied to you. 
It's God's glory displayed and surrounding you. When God pours out his grace on you, when it says here in verse 2, may grace be multiplied to you, this is God pouring more of himself. If God's pouring his goodness to you, God's pouring more of himself to you if you're already a Christian. And if you're not a Christian, you are made in God's image, so you exist receiving some of God's common grace. And it's our prayer that God's grace would multiply to you in saving grace. But here's the thing. Grace is a power. Grace is real. Grace is God's working in you, him pouring himself into you and applying his goodness to you, that changes you. And it changes your conversations. And it changes this church. And it changes the neighborhood. And it changes marriages. And it changes families. And it changes the world. We need God's grace. We want God's grace. We want the grace to be strong with us. The grace to be strong with this church. Now here's the problem. Grace decays. Grace fades. Grace, in some ways, expires. And because grace decays, we need more and more grace. You can't drive your car home today on the gas you put in your car six months ago. That that gas is gone, right? Um, You can't find the energy for your body today on the food you ate five years ago. That energy is gone. The gas is consumed. And so as Christians, we get tired, we're weary, we're weak, we're discouraged, we fail, we sin. How in the world can we get more grace to keep living every day, to put in that next tank of gas, the next installment of food, the next, the next dose of grace and peace to, to get us going in our lives? You know, the sad thing is that no member of Bethany Baptist Church, we have 97 members now, there's a new directory, see Peter Jung to get the new directory, our pastoral intern, we have 97 members now, and there, is, there really is no reason at all that any of our members should be deficient in grace. It's not that God's stingy and there's no grace to be had. There's really no reason that any of us, that you, should be deficient in God's grace. We will always need God's grace. We'll always need more of God's grace. But it makes no sense for someone to die of hunger as he's sitting down at an all-expense-paid, all-you-can-eat buffet. It just makes no sense. There's food everywhere. Go eat something, and you die of hunger right there. That makes no sense. But Christians do that. Christians do that. Christians are starving themselves of grace. And Peter writes these verses, verses 1 and 2, and really this whole letter, to help us. So here's the main goal. We need more grace. Here's the main goal. Take in the scriptures well, or take in the scriptures effectively, so that grace multiplies to you. Take in the scriptures well, take in the scriptures effectively, so that grace multiplies to you. Because that's what verse 2 says. May may the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be multiplied to you. How do we do that? We have to take in the writing of Peter, really the scriptures, if you broaden it, take in Peter's writing, that grace might come to you. Now, if you're going to take in the scriptures effectively, there are three There are three mindsets you must inhabit, okay? Three mindsets, and I'll give them to you, and these are going to be our three points for the sermon. Recognition, remembrance, and anticipation. Recognition, remembrance, and anticipation. If we're going to take in Scripture effectively, we need to take in Scripture by recognizing God's authority, by remembering God's activity, and by anticipating God's generosity. We'll take those one at a time. Let's go to the first one. To take in the scriptures well, take in the scriptures well by recognizing God's authority. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. By recognizing God's authority. We're just going to take the first part of verse 1 here. Peter writes this letter to minister grace. And so he starts with saying, Simeon, or Simon, Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. So Peter is telling us who this letter is from. It's from Peter. And he is also named Simon, and he is a slave of Jesus, or a servant of Jesus, and he's an apostle of Jesus. Do you recognize who Peter is? Do you know who Simon is? Do you know who Simon Peter is? Who is Simon Peter? Well, let's even take those names one at a time. Let's think about Simon and slave first, and then we'll think of Peter and apostle second. When we think of Simon and Peter, Simon is his birth name, right? Simon was not his, his name given, or Simon is the name given by his parents. When he was a fisherman, his name was Simon, and his brother's name was, anyone know? Andrew. 
Simon and Andrew were brothers. They were fishermen. And so Jesus meets Simon and Andrew, and he calls them to follow him. They drop their nets and follow Jesus. You can read this story in Mark chapter 1, verses 16 and 20. There's also another story I read in my devotions this week from Luke 5, where Jesus comes to Peter and says, throw the nets on the other side of the boat. He says, we fished all night, but because you said it, Lord, I'll do it. So he throws the nets on the other side and they they catch so much fish that the nets are breaking. And Peter says, Lord, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. So Simon is the, and then Jesus says, you're going to come with me. You're going to follow me and I'm going to make you a fisher of men. I'm going to make you fish for people. So Simon is his Jewish name. It's his birth name. And Jesus, and, and, and Simon decided to follow Jesus. And that's why he's called here a servant of Jesus. He, he, he recognized Jesus as Lord. He decided to follow Jesus. And there was one story, John Lee preached last week on the feeding of the 5,000, right? Um, in John 6, in that, in that um, version of the story, in that, um, yeah, that perspective on the story, John says that Jesus says, after he feeds the 5,000, they want him to make him king. And um, Jesus says, all right, you guys want to follow me? You need to look for the real bread from heaven. You guys just want this bread to fill yourselves up so you're not hungry anymore, so you don't have to pay for food. But if you really want the real bread, they're like, give us the real bread. And Jesus says, here's the real bread. Eat my body. Eat my body. Drink my blood. That's the real bread. And he doesn't even explain it. And they're like, ugh, drink your blood. What are you talking about? And Jesus says, yeah, you want the real bread from heaven? You don't want to hunger anymore? Eat my body. Drink my blood. And they're like, uh, they, it gets really awkward. And they leave. And the disciples leave. They actually stop following Jesus. And then Jesus looks at his 12 and he says to them, what, do you guys want to leave too? And here's what Simon says. It says in John 6, verse 68, Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. So this is Peter who says, Lord, I'm your slave. You have the words of life. I'm here to follow you. So this letter is written by Simon, the one who was called to fish for people who became a slave of Jesus and recognized that Jesus is Lord and that Jesus has the words of eternal life. What is a slave? As we think about 2 Peter 1 verse 1, a servant. What is a servant? Here a servant or slave, it is similar and very unlike um, American slavery. So if you think about American history and slavery based on ethnicity and skin color and the immoral and sinful and evil slave trade, it's not quite like that. It's more like indentured um, servitude. So it it would be, you'd incur debt, and it wasn't particularly tied to the color of your skin or your ethnicity, but you could go into household slavery or household servitude, and in that, you were a household servant. The main thing you were going to do was to be a manager, a steward, and servant of the home, of the household. So when Peter says, I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus, he's saying, I'm a servant of the Lord's household. I'm here to serve his family. I'm here to serve his household. I'm here to obey whatever Jesus wants me to do. He's my Lord. I'm his servant, and I'm here at his service for his purposes. The initial declaration of Christian faith is Jesus is Lord, right? That's how you become a Christian. If you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, and you believe in your heart, or you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, that's how you're saved. Peter says, Jesus is Lord, and I'm his household servant. So do you recognize that Simon Peter here is not trying to write a letter here just to make up a bunch of stuff to waste your time? He cares about God's words to you. He cares about Jesus's words to you. And he writes the letter of 2 Peter for you to have the words of Jesus, the message of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus. Because he is Jesus's slave. But let's go to the second part here. Not only only is he Simon a slave or a servant, he's also Peter, an apostle. Now, if you're an apostle... That means he has authority. He's, in a disciple. He's a disciple who became or was made an apostle. Now, Jesus renamed Simon Peter. And what does the name Peter mean? Anyone here know? Rock. The name Peter means rock. And if you remember in Matthew 16, verses 17 to 19, Jesus said, who do people say that I am? Oh, you're a prophet. You're Jeremiah. You're, you're Elijah. And Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Disciples. And Peter stands up and says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And then Jesus says in Matthew 16, verse 17, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. And notice he called him Simon. You're blessed, Simon. And then he says, and I also say to you that you are 
Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you, Peter, the rock. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. So Peter's not just any slave like us. He's not just any servant of the Lord. He's not just any disciple who says Jesus is Lord. He is an apostle. Not only is he an apostle, he is the rock that Christ would say, at least in this passage, that Christ would build his church on Peter and his confession and who Peter is. So Peter is special here. So we need to listen. That's why this first point is, if you're going to take in scripture, you need to recognize God's authority. Second Peter is God's word to us because Peter is an apostle. And he is the rock that Christ declares here that he's going to build his church on. And he gives Peter, as an apostle, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. An apo- what is an apostle? An apostle is a special, at least in this case, capital A apostle. They are special, one-time generational eyewitnesses of Christ's resurrection. And they are special in the fact that they have special authority to exercise the keys of the kingdom on earth as apostles. They are the touchstones of doctrine, it says in one Bible dictionary, the purveyors of authentic tradition about Christ. If you're a member of this church, you might have seen in our church email, I sent you last night an article on what an apostle is. There's like several paragraphs there by Andrew Walls, and you would do well to read that just to get an idea of what an apostle is. But the point here is that the apostles have the authority of Jesus himself to exercise the keys of the kingdom here on earth. Now, Peter, would you, did Peter use this authority or did he not? Did, did, Peter build, did, did God use Peter to build the church in its early days? Yes. yes, he did, right? In Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit comes down, everyone's like, what's the commotion? Peter stands up and preaches the gospel, and 3,000 people get saved after they keep explaining the gospel, and they get baptized, and then God's adding more and more to the church. So Peter's the first one to preach in Jerusalem the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the church is born, the new covenant church is born that day, right? And then you go from there to Acts chapter 8, and there's Samaritans who are hearing the gospel. And they hear the gospel, but they don't receive the Holy Spirit until Peter comes. And Peter comes to that group that heard the gospel from Philip. And then Peter comes and preaches the gospel again. They believe, and then the Holy Spirit descends on them. So now the gospel goes from just the Jews to Samaritans. And then you get to Acts chapter 10, and you get a, you get a Gentile, not a Jew, not a half-Jew, a, a, a Gentile who's praying, and then he gets a vision, and he calls for Peter, and Peter comes and preaches the gospel to Cornelius... And the Holy Spirit comes on Cornelius. And then Peter goes back to the church in Jerusalem to defend that the Holy Spirit is working. What is God doing through Peter? He's setting the foundation of the church on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is he not? Peter is the rock. He is an apostle. He is the one used by the Lord Jesus to spread the gospel and break down these barriers from Jew to Samaritan, who's a half Jew, half Gentile, to Gentiles. So recognize, when you read 2 Peter you're reading God's word. And when you read God's word, you better recognize God's authority. Turn with me to Jeremiah, if you would. If you can't find it, that's okay, just listen. But Jeremiah, you can keep your finger in 2 Peter. Turn to Jeremiah 42. I want to show you, I want to tell you a story here. It's a little obscure. Most of you don't know this story. Of someone who, I just want you to see how these people recognize God's authority. So, so, Picture this, you're, in, you're almost in exile, you're about to get taken over by Babylon, and Jeremiah is like the only prophet, he's not the only, he's one of the few prophets saying, doom is coming, repent, God is going to exile us, and they're like, no, it's not going to happen, these other false prophets say, no, it's not going to happen. Jeremiah, every time, he turns out to be right. He has a track record of being right. So now they're kind of in exile, well, they do take a lot of the Jews to exile, but there's a pocket of them still in Israel. And Jeremiah has a perfect track record of being right, so this is what they say to him. In Jeremiah 42, verse 5. They said to Jeremiah, May the Lord be a true and faithful witness against us if we don't act according to every word the Lord your God sends you to tell us. Whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, we will obey the Lord our God to whom we are sending you so that it may go well with us. We will certainly obey the Lord our God. Do you guys see what's going on here? Jeremiah has a perfect track record. They're there in Jerusalem. It's in shambles. They want to know what God wants them to do. And, Jeremiah, and they said, Jeremiah, go to the Lord and figure out what he wants us to do. Come back. Whatever you say, whether we like it or not, pleasant or unpleasant, we will do it. We will certainly obey the voice of the Lord. So Jeremiah goes away for 10 days. He comes back and he says, all right, here's what the Lord says. The Lord says, we need to stay here in Jerusalem and not go to Egypt. 
Yeah, the Babylonians might come, but God says he'll protect us here and we need to stay here so that God will bless us. If we obey God like we didn't do it earlier, that's why we're exiled. If we obey God, we will be blessed and protected and flourish. But if we go to Egypt or if we go anywhere else, God will surely punish us and, and, and we will not be able to escape God's judgment. So what's their response? Look at Jeremiah 43, verses one through three. When Jeremiah had finished speaking to all the people, all the words of the Lord, their God, all these words, the Lord, their God had sent him to give them. Look at verse two. Then Azariah, son of Hoshiah, Johanan, son of um, Korea, and all the other arrogant men responded to Jeremiah. Here's what they said. You are speaking a lie. Stay in Jerusalem, lie. The Lord our God has not sent you to say you must not go to Egypt and stay here for a while. Rather, Baruch, son of Neriah, is inciting you against us to hand us over to the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonians, to put us to death or deport us to Babylon. So Jeremiah's saying, God's telling us to stay put right here. We're going to be okay. No, you're lying to us. If we stay here, the Babylonians are going to come back. They're going to take over us. We're going to be captive. No, we got to get out and go to Egypt. Now they had said right before that, 10 days earlier, whatever God says, we're going to what? We're going to do. Here's Jeremiah speaking God's words. And they say, liar, you don't understand my situation. It's too hard for me to obey God. This is not God's word. You're lying. Someone, someone, told, you, someone told you to say this. This is not God. Do they recognize God's authority? Yes or no? No. Did they profess that they would recognize God's authority initially? Yes. And is that not how many of us are today? God, give me your word and I'll obey you. Just show me what to do, Lord, and I'll do it. Just make it clear and I'll do it. And then God makes it clear like, nah, that's not what he's telling me to do. That can't be right. He, he, he's missing, there's, there's, another, there's another piece of the puzzle that he's missing. Brothers and sisters, if you're going to take scripture in well, if, you're going to multi, if God is going to multiply grace to you, you must take in scripture by recognizing God's authority. You must not write it off the fine print and, and make excuses for why it's your turn to disobey God in this moment. There's never a good reason to disobey and deny God's authority. So question for you. Do you recognize God's authority in the writings of the apostles and their teaching? Do you guys recognize the authority of God in the Bible? Jesus said, my sheep will listen to my voice. Do you hear the voice of Jesus? Do you eventually submit to the Lord with gladness, even after your first reaction is resistance? And let's just be honest, brothers and sisters, you're in a church where everyone here resists God's will at certain points, don't we? We hear God's word and our initial thing is, nope, 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 I'm not that. But I'm not asking about your first response. I'm asking about your eventual response. Sometimes your first response is your eventual response and you continue in disobedience. That is unacceptable. But do we hear the voice of the Lord and he tells us something we're like, I don't want to do that, Lord. But then you think about it more and you realize that God's commands are not burdensome. They're the keys to your freedom. And then you obey. The Bible has authority over your feelings, your thoughts, your actions, your desires, and your intuition. And notice here that uh, are in, in the early church, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, it says in Acts 2.42. So here's an application to our church family. Bethany Baptist Church family, let's be devoted to the apostles' teaching. Let's not pay lip service to the Bible only to spend, um, only, um, but only spend a little bit of time reading the Bible. Let's not pay lip service. Let's not say we believe the Bible is God's word, but never ask and find out answers to our questions. Let's not say we trust in the authority of the Bible, but not be a learning community that applies the Bible in our lives as a church family. If you're not a Christian, it may seem to you like it's impossible to take the Bible as completely true and authoritative. I mean, think about modern science. Think about history and culture. Can we be sure that these are not just legends? I mean, did Jesus really rise from the dead? Was he really born of a virgin? Are we really going to rise from the dead? I mean, think about science. Like, can you prove that scientifically, that, that people rise from the dead? Or even just think about it socially. What does the Bible say about women and submission and headship and manhood and womanhood? Can we really trust the Bible if it's so socially regressive? How can we trust the Bible scientifically and historically and socially? Well, here's a brief response. Why can you trust the Bible? Here's why you can trust the Bible. 
if you're saying, you know, these are just legends, tall tales that were exaggerated, the Bible, when, when the Bible talks about Jesus' miracles, feeding 5,000, raising the dead, rising from the dead himself, these, these writings were written 30 to 60 years after his resurrection from the dead. 30 years after his death. So these writings are far too early to be legends. It takes centuries for legends to build. If you write it 30 years later, people can still remember and say that's not true. So that's the first thing. The second reason is that the, the, the content of the Bible is far too counterproductive. I mean, we just sang it. We sang it here in See What a Morning. Did you guys see that there in See What a Morning? It says, um, see Mary weeping, where is he laid? As in sorrow, she turns from the empty tomb. And who, who's the first person to see Jesus? A man or a woman? A woman, Mary. The first eyewitnesses to Jesus' Jesus's resurrection were women. Now, you know, if it's in the first century... Praise God, it's different today in 21st century America, but in first century Rome, women could not even publicly testify in the court of law. And you're gonna, you're gonna bank the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection on women? Why would the Bible do that if it's making up a story? The only reason the Bible would say that is because it's not making up a story. It's, true. it's very likely true. And then if you say, well, the Bible is socially regressive, it's culturally offensive. It can't be true because the Bible is culturally offensive. Do you realize that there are many cultures in this world and what's offensive to you is not offensive to other cultures in the Middle East right now. And some things that are offensive to them are not offensive to you. So why is your culture better than their culture? Every culture has things that line up with other cultures and don't line up. If you're just going to base your accepting of the Bible on what's currently culturally relevant, I mean, think about what your grandparents believed and what you believe that's different. Think about what your grandchildren will believe after you. They'll probably laugh at some of our beliefs, right? some of our practices. It, it makes no sense to write off this book because of your current cultural fad. So I encourage you to think and receive, recognize God's authority. Children, children, the Bible has more authority than your parents. The Bible has more authority than your teachers. The, Bi the Bible has more authority than law enforcement. The Bible has more authority than your pastors. Always listen to the Bible. Always listen to the Bible. Doesn't matter what anyone else says. If they're against the Bible, always reject that and always listen to the Bible because it's God's word. The good news is that God clearly speaks to you because he loves you. God is good to you. So praise God and trust him. So that's the first thing is taking the scriptures well um, by recognizing God's authority. Secondly, taking the scriptures well or effectively by remembering God's activity. That's our second point. So first of all, by remembering God's authority. Secondly, by remembering God's activity. Look at chapter, go back to 2 Peter chapter 1 and look at verse 1 again. To those who have received a faith equal to ours through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, there's gospel in here. There's gospel grace in those words. He gave you, what did God do? What's God's activity? He gave you what? What have you obtained? What have you received? A what? A faith and so if you've received it, who gave it? Who's giving this faith? God is. You've received a faith equal to Peter's. God is the one who gives the faith. So brothers and sisters, when you read the Bible, when you take in scripture, remember that God is working in you. He's given you faith. And what kind of faith did he give you? It says here. A faith that's what? Equal to ours. So here's some other uh, English translations. Equal, like, precious, as precious, faith as precious as ours, a faith as valuable as ours, a faith in the same, the same kind of faith as ours, a faith in equal standing, a faith in equal value. Here's the point. It's not speaking about your subjective faith. Does every member of here have an equal exercise of faith in their lives? No. Some of us have more faith. Some of us have less faith. And it goes up and down even in our own lives from moment to moment and day to day. So we're not talking about we're all equally strong in our practice of faith. We are not equally strong physically, are we? We're not all equally strong physically, but are we equal in our status as humans? Whether you're really weak or really strong, if you're really strong, you're not more human than a weak human. You're equally human in your status. And so in the same way, we might have different exercises of, great, of faith in our lives, but we have an equal faith in terms of our status before God. We are equally saved we are equally forgiven of all of our sins. We are equally made God's children. We are equally slaves and servants of Christ. We are equally disciples. As a church family, we are equally the temple of God as a megachurch. Just because a church has 
1,000 people and we have 97 members, it doesn't make us more or less church. We're equally the temple of God. We are equally the body of Christ. We have received a faith equal to the apostle Peter, to the rock on whom Christ built his church. What What an amazing privilege. Peter is not more saved than you. He's not more God's child. He's not more of a slave than you. He's not more of a disciple. He's not more of the Holy Spirit's temple. He's not more of the body Christ, the body of Christ than you. He is equally justified as you are. We are equally declared righteous before God by faith in Jesus Christ. We have received an equal faith to the apostle Peter. Don't belittle fellow Christians, weak Christians, burdensome Christians, Christians who keep stumbling as you disciple them over and over and over again, repeating things a thousand times. How many times has your parents repeated things to you? Right? They have an equal faith to the apostle Peter. So let us honor people with dignity, fellow Christians. That doesn't mean we have equal offices. We're not all apostles. We're not all pastors. We're not all deacons or deaconesses. We don't have equal offices in terms of God's ministry today, but we all have equal faith in Christ in terms of our standing, equal salvation. So notice here, to those who have received a faith equal to ours, and how does this faith come? How does this equal faith, this equal standing through faith in Jesus, how does it come to us? Through what? Through hearing is correct. Well, you guys are going to Romans 10. That's good, but let's go to 2 Peter 1. Through what? Where does it come from? Through what? This, this, it's not your faith, your exercise of faith. It's your status of faith. It comes through what? The righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Quick side note here. I don't know if you'll be able to convince a Jehovah's Witness with this, but when it says our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, it's not talking about God and Jesus. This, the way the Greek is constructed here, our God and Savior, his name is Jesus. So it's, it's the same, the God and Savior is referring to the same person. Our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. But moving on here. So we have, we, have faith, we have faith, we have salvation through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's how we have it. If we received faith or if you've obtained faith, then God gave it and he gave it to you through Jesus Christ. Through the righteousness of Christ. Paul says in, in, in Romans 5, through the one man's act of righteousness, the many are justified. Through one man's disobedience, Through one man's disobedience, we're all plunged into sin and death. But through one man's obedience, through Christ's righteousness, we are justified. We are declared righteous. So it's through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we have salvation, that we have received saving faith. What does that mean? It doesn't only mean that Christ, through Christ's righteous death and righteous resurrection, we have salvation. It means that we have received faith through Christ's salvation or through christ's righteousness what does it mean that we've received faith do you know that what's the difference between you and a non-christian what made you a christian what's the one thing you did to become a christian believe right believe and that's a receiving type of thing that's not a you got to work because you're better than us you just trusted in the lord right so are you better than non-christians because you're smarter because your faith is stronger no because this faith was given to you through what? Through the righteousness of who? Through Christ. Or let me, let me put in a word that Rock is going to quote maybe in his uh, in baptismal testimony. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is a what? Gift of God, not of works so that no one can boast. Your faith in Christ is a gift from God. You have received this faith from Christ's righteousness. When Christ died for, when Christ obeyed God for you and died for you and rose for you, he secured your faith, your belief, your repentance from sin. You were given saving faith through Christ's righteousness. And it's right that God gives us faith. God, God puts himself under the ob- obligation to give us faith. Have you ever seen the gospel track? There's different gospel tracks that are floating around. Have you ever seen the gospel track that says four things God cannot do? What are four things? Can anyone here name one thing God can't do? Lie, sin. Okay, good. So here in the track it says, God cannot lie. God cannot forget, because he's omniscient. God cannot change. And God cannot fail. Well, there's another thing God can't do. God cannot withhold saving faith from someone Christ has purchased with his blood. God cannot withhold Faith equal to Peter's 
from anyone who Christ has died for with his blood. And that's what John gets at in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. You guys know, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and what? Just. Not just faithful. He's just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all, all unrighteousness. In other words, if God does not cleanse us from all unrighteousness, if God does not forgive us of our sins, then he's not what? He's not just. He's not righteous. Because Christ substituted himself in our place for our sins. He took on our unrighteousness and was condemned for our sins. And he has given us his righteousness. So for God to not forgive us and not cleanse us is for God to be unrighteous. God willingly obligates himself. God, God is not forced into this. Like he, God actually painted himself into this corner, right? God wanted to have this obligation where he has to forgive you every time you sin. God loves this obligation. He loves to, to, to have to, to be obligated to, to be required to by himself to forgive your sins and to give you equal standing. It's through the righteousness of Christ, his life, death, and resurrection that God gives you faith. Everyone who, God, who Christ paid for will be saved in the end. We share the gospel with everybody all the time and God will give equal faith, this equal standing, to every single person from every tribe, nation, tongue, and language. He's going to give it to them. The victory is going to be won. And your faith was given because of Christ. So God gave you saving faith through Christ's righteousness. He opened your ears to hear him, to really pay attention. He opened your eyes to see him. He opened your heart to trust him. If you're not a Christian, let me share with you briefly here what this good news is. Here's the good news. Well, first, let me start with the bad news. We're all sinners, and we are going to stand judgment before God. We are not righteous. We are not good. Even though we do good things here and there, even our goodness is tainted with evil and selfishness. And God is holy and righteous. And therefore, God will punish us. The Bible says that the wages or the penalty of sin is death. It's talking about eternal death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So here's the bad news. Because you're a sinner, you're going to hell. Because you're a sinner, God will damn you and condemn you in hell forever. And he's right to do that. Here's the good news. God sent Jesus to live the life you should have lived, a righteous life of obedience to the Lord in all of his life and death. And then he dies on the cross and God condemns him on the cross in righteousness because Christ unites himself to sinners. God condemns Christ on the cross and then Christ dies he rises from the dead on the third day so that everyone who repents from their sin and trusts in Christ are united to Jesus so that his death is their death and his resurrection is their resurrection. So here's, the, here's, here's God's good news to you. You can have resurrection life. You can have resurrection forgiveness. You can have resurrection power. You can have a resurrection relationship with God and with people and with the new earth to come forever if you will repent from your sins today and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian, Turn from your sins, turn from your righteousness, turn from your goodness, and trust in Jesus Christ alone. Your faith and your salvation is through Christ's righteousness, not yours. You'll never be a good enough Christian. You'll never be a good enough husband or father or mother or wife or neighbor or friend. But Christ was good enough, and he'll save you if you'll call out to him to save you. That's our prayer. So let's praise God for his activity. God has saved us and he is working in us still. Brother, sister, stand amazed that you have faith in Jesus. You believe in Jesus. Think of your friends who don't. The only difference is God, not you. Church family, let's remind one another that we have received equal faith. And children, children, listen up. Listen, children. God saves kids too. God saves children too. You're going to hear Rock share his testimony and he doesn't know when God saved him. God saves kids too. Trust in Jesus today. Turn from your sins and pray and ask God to save you. So we take in scripture. If you're gonna take in scripture effectively, you're gonna do it by um, recognizing God's authority. That's number one, right? Secondly, you're going to remember God's activity that God saved you and that helps you to take in scripture because God's working in you. And thirdly and lastly, take in the scriptures well by anticipating God's generosity. That's verse two. By anticipating God's generosity. Look at verse two. And here's where we got the main goal. 
in term, or the main idea of grace multiplying. May grace and peace be multiplied to you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now notice here, um, Peter's not saying what he's going to say in 2 Peter 3.18, which says, grow in grace. That's a command to you. BBC, grow in grace. Christian, grow in grace. That's not what's being said here in verse 2. It's not you growing in grace. Yeah, that's not a command to you. This is not your obligation. Peter's more praying a blessing on you. May grace be multiplied to you. May God multiply grace to you. May you experience multiplying grace and peace through the reading of this letter, through the reading of the Bible, through taking in Scripture. That's Peter's blessing and prayer. Now notice here, go back to verse 2. How is, or how is grace and peace... Actually, wait, I'm sorry. Going back to verse 2. It says, through the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus. What comes through the knowledge of God and the knowledge of Jesus? What comes through the knowledge of God and Jesus? Two things. What is it? Grace and peace. And it's through the knowledge of who? God and Jesus our Lord. So I'm going to ask you a very basic question. Who is God? Who is God? Now, you can answer that in many correct ways. I'll just give you the BBC catechism answer. Who is God? God is the Father, loving and giving life to his Son in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. God is a personal community of love. If if you're going to get grace and peace, it comes through knowing who God is. Not just knowing who God is, what is God? Do you know the catechism answer to that? What is God? God is a spirit, triune, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. That's who God is. That's what God is. So grace and peace comes through the knowledge of God, the Father, and through who? Jesus, our Lord. Who is Jesus? According to our catechism, Jesus is the the only redeemer is the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, in whom God became man and bore the penalty for sin in himself. Jesus is the savior of the world. Or if you guys know the Apostles' Creed, Jesus Christ is the only son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, Born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. Do you know that Jesus? Does that person I just described to you, does he sound familiar to you? Sound like someone you know? Grace and peace comes through you knowing God and through you knowing Jesus. Not just knowing the catechism, but knowing him personally but knowing who he is. So how do we come to know God? How does grace come to us? Where does the knowledge of God come from? How are we going to get to know God? Anyone? The Bible, right? Through, through God. Only God can tell us about God. If God doesn't speak to us, if God stays silent, then we can all guess who God is. And that's what the world is doing right now, right? You could Google who is God. But if God doesn't speak, you don't know who God is. You don't know who Jesus Christ is. The only way we can know is through God speaking, and God speaks through the Bible, through the scriptures. And what do the scriptures mainly teach? They mainly teach Jesus Christ, including what man is to believe about God and what duty God requires of man. And so when you know God, what do we receive? Grace and peace. What is multiplied to us? Grace and peace. I love the word multiply there too. It's not like God wants to give you a little bit of grace and a tiny bit of peace. God and Peter want grace to be multiplied to you. They don't want you to be weak in grace. They want you to be strong in grace. Now notice here, I don't, John Piper pointed this out in the book Future Grace, and I've, it's stuck with me ever since, and I keep leaning on it every time I get to these things when I read through the letters. Have you ever noticed in Paul's letters specifically, but it's in other letters too, um, there's, there's a generally consistent, not completely, but generally consistent pattern. In the beginning of the letter, it says grace to you, And at the end of the letter, it says, grace what? Anyone know the difference? Be with you. Grace to you. Then you read the letter, and then grace be with you. My whole sermon is based on this idea. Grace, may grace come to you. And how's it going to come? It's the beginning of the letter. You're going to read the rest of the the letter, right? You're going to read the scripture. And after you read the Bible, at the end of the Bible, the letter says what? Grace what? Be with you. Because what happened when you read the letter? What came to you? Grace. Grace. Grace comes to you through the reading of the Bible. It comes to you through the reading of the letter, through reading Peter's letter here, 2 Peter. Grace will, become, will be multiplied to you. Peace will be multiplied to you as you take in the Bible. 
And at the end of your, when you're done with your Bible reading, may grace be with you. May the grace be with you, we could say, right? May his, may his grace be with you. The grace of Second Peter, the grace of this sermon, may it be with you as you leave. So brothers and sisters, what's the application for us? There's no command here. The command is grow in grace in 2 Peter 3.18. There's no command here. There's a prayer that grace would multiply to us. So here's my command to you. Here's my application to you. Anticipate grace. Expect grace. God's goodness is poured out to you. God loves to pour out his grace to you. God loves to give more of himself to you. He loves to have you experience his love. He delights in that. God is not stingy. He loves you, and he wants you to experience him. God wants to give you more of himself. Here's the question. Do you want to experience more of God's glory? Do you want to taste and see more of God's goodness? Do you want to share more of, being in God's, more of God's being in your soul and in our church? Then anticipate grace and anticipate peace. What's peace? God's wholeness, God's harmony, and God's blessing. You hear this often, maybe you don't. I say this every day to my kids, at least five times a day. May the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look on you with favor and give you peace. God's peace is the harmony of not just peace with God, but when you're right with God and you're in peace with God, you should be at peace with everyone else who's at peace with God. And you'll be at peace with this world. Now, this world is disordered and broken because of sin. But on the new earth, when you're at peace with God, you'll be at peace with everyone else and you'll be at peace with your own body and you'll be at peace within your own soul and you'll be at peace with all of creation. And so harmony is restored in the kingdom of God. Order is restored. Peace and wholeness, not just personal wholeness, universal wholeness, social wholeness, societal wholeness, everything will be whole. And grace, and God wants you to experience that grace and peace now before the end. So use the knowledge given because it comes through the knowledge of God and of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you, brothers and sisters, to expect and anticipate grace. I want you to raise your level of anticipation and expectation. I love all you can eat Korean barbecue. Confession. Amen, says my wife. We try, we, we try to go once a month. We try to. We haven't, we haven't been faithful lately. We try to go once a month. It's a reminder. Right now, my stomach is I'm feeling it right now. Now, on the days we go to all-you-can-eat Korean barbecue, I try to eat light. And I try to save as much space as I can because I'm anticipating a feast. And I'm anticipating that the restaurant's not going to run out of the meat and the rice and all the sides. I anticipate that they're not going to run out and they're going to have all that I can ever eat until I'm done. And I usually feel a little sick after. Because right, I eat a little too much. I got to back up. Um, but my level of expectation, there's an anticipation, and I actually even prepare my body for this event. Because I have an expectation and an anticipation that food is going to come my way in abundance. Now, brothers and sisters, do you realize that every Sunday, God is about to spread a bounty of grace to you? In his word, sung and prayed and read, and preached, and then he's going to come again at night for prayer, and more teaching, and more of God's word? Do you realize that when you have this Bible at your home sitting on your bed, or next to your bed, or on the shelf, that you have a bounty of an all-you-can-eat buffet? But it's not the problem. The problem is not that grace is unavailable. The problem is not that God is being stingy. The problem is that we come to church with low expectations. It's just ho-hum another Sunday. We don't expect that God is going to give us grace. At least not grace that's really going to transform us and change us drastically. Your level of expectation when you take in scripture can either disable or enable you to see and receive the grace that's flowing to you. So are you a low expectation hearer and reader? Or are you a high expectation reader and hearer? Don't let the frequency and ease of the Bible intake make you think that there's nothing powerful happening. Just because it's on your phone and almost everything else you do on your phone is not powerful doesn't mean that when you're not reading the Bible on your phone, that's not a powerful thing. Grace and peace flow from the knowledge of God in Scripture. There are waterfalls of grace pouring down on you and we bring a little thimble 
a little thimble to this waterfall of grace to say, I am so thirsty. I need so much power in my life. I got so many problems. I need so much of God's grace. I need peace to be multiplied to me. And so we come to church with a thimble. God, I'm thirsty. And there's a waterfall flowing. And then we go back to our week, starved for more grace. God, why aren't you here? Give me more grace. Brothers and sisters, raise your expectations. Raise your anticipation. One of the things I love about going to a Bible conference, like Together for the Gospel, and I also hate about it, I love that I'm expecting a lot of grace. So some people go to conferences and they're like, man, I wish my church could be like that every Sunday. And in some ways I want to say, your church actually can be like that every Sunday. It's because when I'm flying on a plane and I'm packing my stuff, I'm anticipating it, I'm expecting it, and I'm coming so excited. And it's not that there's more Bible coming there. It's that my, my, I'm not bringing a thimble. My anticipation level is through the roof. And so I'm expect, I bring a huge bowl, right? I'm bringing as much as I can because I want grace. I actually flew across the country to get some grace. So I'm expecting you, God, to pour out grace. And what does God do? He does what he does every time. He comes through, right? He pours out grace. And so, brothers and sisters, where do you sit on Sundays? And why, why do you choose to sit where you sit? Is it because you're so hungry for grace and that's the best place for you to hear? I mean, I'm not you, so I'm not going to be legalistic here, but I could never sit in the back, personally. I can't, like, there's just too much. I could see too much. There's too much distraction. There's too much noise. There's people talking in the foyer during the singing and praying sometimes, you know. I just, I, I, I can't do it. Now, you're different. You have better, uh, stronger concentration than I do. Praise God for that. But do you sit where you sit because it's strategic, because you're coming for grace? Or do you sit out of comfort and convenience for other reasons? Because you're socially nervous. Brothers and sisters, God is pouring out grace on you. He means to multiply peace to you. Come for that. Come for that. What opportunities in your week do you have to read God's word? What opportunities do you have this week to hear God's word preached? We got these phones with podcasts and you could, get all, you got, you could have the Bible be read to you. You could hear sermons. There's just so much grace that you can have flowing to you through, through technology today. If you're not a Christian, God wants you to know him through his word. So here's what I want to tell you if you're not a Christian. It comes through not just reading the Bible, it comes through knowledge, which means you need to ask questions and get answers. So I encourage you, if you're not a Christian, especially if you are a Christian, but if you're not a Christian, you're already hearing God's word this morning. Keep hearing God's word. Keep reading the Bible and keep asking questions to get knowledge because grace comes through God revealing himself to you as you understand him. We don't trick people into Christianity. We convince people of truth and reality so that they might come to trust in Christ. Children, again, it's fun because I got my six-year-old here. So, children, read your Bible. I know you're learning how to read. Some of you are learning how to read and don't know how to read yet. Learn how to read so that you can read your Bible. When my kids would get discouraged in reading in homeschool, I'd say, you have to learn how to read so you can read your Bible. That's why we're teaching you how to read. That's the main reason we're teaching you to read. So you can read your Bible. That's the main, you can read all kinds of other things, great. But we're teaching you how to read so you can read your Bible. So read your Bible. And, and, and learn as much as you can and ask your questions because grace flows to you. And kids, even though I said grace decays, there is some grace that is residual. You're, you'll learn some things that will come back into your life 10 years later and 20 years later and 30 years later. So it's not like everything decays. So learn as much of the Bible as you can in childhood. That's why your parents make you sit through an hour-long sermon here this morning. If you're discouraged this morning, Christian, if you're feeling weak or stumbling or stubborn and stuck in your sin, let me encourage you. God longs to multiply grace to you even in your stubborn unrepentance. God is not calling you to be strong in this text. He's not calling you to fix yourself. He's calling you to hear him. He's calling you to look to him. He's calling you to call out to him. He's calling you to open your heart to him. He's not telling you to fix yourself. Remember when the Israelites were got bitten by poisonous snakes in the wilderness? What did they have to do to get healed? Did they have to start fixing their lives and, you know, and, when, and stop complaining and, and stop complaining for 10 days straight before God would give grace to them? What did they have to do? Look to the bronze serpent. Just look up to the bronze serpent and grace would flow to you. That's all God's telling you to do. You don't have to be strong, brother. You don't have to be strong, sister. Just look to God. Look to Jesus. Remember Peter? What did he do to get saved from the water? He was walking on water. You guys talked about that last week. 
He was walking on water, plunged into the, into the waters. What did he have to do? Did he have to muster up enough faith to start walking on water again? Is that what happened? No, he just said what? Lord, what? Save me, help. That's all he said, help. So if you're a Christian who's stuck right now and you feel like, I can't grow, I just, I'm stuck in my sin, just look to the Lord and say, help. Help me. Save me. And the Lord will come through. Let us keep drinking deeply from the waterfall of grace. So brothers, take in scripture well. How do you do it? How are you going to take in scripture well so that grace multiplies to you? Take it in by recognizing God's authority, by remembering God's activity in giving you faith, and by anticipating God's generosity. God loves to multiply grace and peace to you. Now, brothers and sisters, let's be honest. We fail in this, don't we? We don't recognize the Bible as the authority. We treat this Bible like any other book. We don't recognize the authority. We, don't, we recognize the authority of our phones more than the Bible or the authority of videos or apps or TV shows or friends. We recognize the authority of our emotions more than we recognize the authority of Scripture. And we don't remember that God opened our eyes and our, and our hearts in the past. We don't remember that God gave us a faith equal to the apostle Peter. So when, when we feel guilty, we stay away from God and we wallow in our guilt and we get stuck in our shame. And we don't anticipate God's generosity when we engage this book. We're too often unimpressed and unaware of the grace flowing to us. We don't deserve peace and blessing. What do we deserve? We deserve the opposite of blessing, cursing. We deserve enmity. We deserve judgment. But Christ recognized God's authority all the time. Christ remembered his calling. And Christ always knew that God would be generous. And yet, even though Christ always lived that way, he was cut off from God's peace and blessing and favor. God turned his face away from him. We say, may may the Lord make his face shine on you. God's face did not shine on Jesus on the cross. God forsook him on the cross. God abandoned him on the cross. He was cut off from the Father's goodness, cut off from the land of the living. He was condemned in sin, even though he never sinned himself. He was condemned for sin, even though he never sinned himself. He was condemned for us, so that we might have grace multiplied to us, so that we might have peace multiplied to us, as we recognize his authority, and remember his activity, and anticipate his generosity. So here's the good news, brothers. God is speaking. God has opened up your ears, and your mind, and your heart, and God is pouring out goodness into you through his words, whether you realize it or not. So here's my call, my final call to you. Break the, monotony, break the monotony and the routine of your Bible intake. Set up new routines with a new mentality of a higher expectation every time you come to God's holy, authoritative, inerrant word. We say, this is the word of the Lord after we read scripture reading. As a reminder, and we say, thanks be to God because grace is flowing through the word of the Lord read and preached. So remind yourself one of these three things this week. When you take scripture, God is speaking to me. Or maybe remind yourself, God has saved me and he's changed my heart and he's, he's working right now. Or right before you read your Bible for devotions tomorrow or tonight before evening service, when someone reads scripture, right before the scripture reading, just remind yourself, God is pouring out more of himself in me. Grace and peace is going to be multiplied right now as I hear God's word. If you don't change your mentality, you'll be bored with the Bible. And if you get bored with the Bible sometimes, I get bored sometimes. You'll be bored with the Bible. You'll ultimately neglect your Bible and the grace in your life will decay and shrivel. But if you change your mentality, you'll hear Christ's voice. You'll know God more and more and you'll draw near to him and grace and peace will be multiplied to you. We wanna change ourselves. We wanna change our church. We wanna change our neighborhood. We want to change our loved ones. We wanna change the world. The forces of evil are still battling the forces of good and we desperately need God's grace. Grace decays, but new grace keeps coming. Streams of mercy never ceasing. His mercies are new every morning. His grace is multiplied to you more and more. So may his grace be with you. Let's pray. Give you a moment to pray on your own. A few seconds here, and I'll close this in prayer.
Father, we pray that grace would remain in us and grow in us. Thank you for the grace you're pouring out to us. Thank you for the peace you're multiplying in us. We pray that you'd multiply it now more and more as we continue to think, sing, converse, spend the Lord's Day together, come back for evening service. May grace and peace be multiplied to us, we pray. Help us, Lord, pour it out on us. Open our hearts, raise our anticipation and expectations. Change our mentality as we approach your holy and happy word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.